Grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel 22. I've got to be honest with you, when, when I was uh, uh, going over this passage this, this past week, um, I was struck by how complicated this passage is simply because it's not complicated. Right? Uh, what, what we've looked at over recent weeks are some really difficult passages. To, to read, to interpret, to apply some really difficult passages. But, but I think through that, we've really seen the glory of God through those passages. So that God inspired hard passages as he did the easy one. We, I got so used to those difficult passages, this one's too easy. The, the, the subject is quite straightforward. It's a psalm of worship put here right in the middle of this narrative. Uh, so it, it will be a, uh, um, a real relief to us. So this is very straightforward. It, it, there's a parallel in Psalm 18. Uh, so it's like reading one of the Psalms, because that's what it is. And uh, so it's so easy, it's complicated, right? And uh, uh, so that is quite a change of pace. So page 295 of your pew Bibles, you stand with me out of reverence to God's word. Due to the length, we'll read the first several verses. But of course, we'll be looking at the entire passage. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. The ways of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because they was angry. Because uh, he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice and he sent out arrows and scattered them. Lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew out of the many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we ask every time we gather the same thing. You would open our hearts that we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory and your kingdom, our ears that we would heed your word and apply it to our lives, our mouth that we would speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves, to one, to one another, and to this dying world around us, our hands and our feet, that you would move us to apply your word and be transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Herein we see a God worthy of worship, a God in which we should be thankful for. May we not take that for granted. All of our lives are worship. And may it be that we worship the risen Savior. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What are some ways to conclude a story, right? We, we are at 
nearing the end of, of David's life. In fact, next week, Lord willing, we'll see David's uh, final words. Uh, and so here we are at the end of David's life. And the question is, how do you end the story? We, we began this journey a long, 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 long time ago, about 80 sermons ago. Um, in, in, uh, it's like 60 sermons ago. In, in uh, 1 Samuel 16, with, with the, when David is first introduced. And here we are at the end of David's life. And the question is, how, how do you end a, a, a good story? And, and so I did a Google search, so I'm an expert now. And, and in that Google search, I want to know, how do you conclude a good story? Can I give you just a few of the ideas that, that, that came up? One is you, you have a tidy, a tidy conclusion, right? This is where all the story arcs come to a fitting conclusion. There, there, there's, there's nothing uh, new. There's no new stories to tell. Nothing else happens. Everybody uh, comes to a conclusion. And, and so you conclude with, they all lived happily ever after, right? Another option is a cliffhanger. This is basically the way television runs, right? Have you ever tried to uh, watch a series on the Netflix or whatever it is, and you're thinking, okay, we're only going to watch one episode tonight, honey, and then it ends with a cliffhanger? You're like, I know I got to work. I mean, state employees, you work. But, but you know, I know I got to go into work tomorrow. How, how about just one more? I can't end it on that. Four episodes into it, you, you, really, you just fall asleep. You're so tired, right? That's a cliffhanger. What about a twist, the end night Shyamalan approach to storytelling, right? What this does is, is at the end, you, you didn't see it coming. Okay? And, and what it makes you do is to go back and you realize, oh, uh, Bruce What's-His-Face was dead all along, wouldn't he? Why did I not see that? I can't think of his last name. It doesn't matter. He's not in the Bible. Uh, or, or you can do what I think is the frustrating way to do it, and that is ambiguity. You know, like, like you get to the end, you're like, Okay, what was the point of this three-hour movie again? Right, and, you, and so you Google, what's the point of this three-hour movie again? And the, you, you get an article featuring the director. He says, well, I think the conclusion is open to interpretation. No, 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 that's not the way this, I did not invest myself to make up the end for you, Hoss. Right, that was your job, right? I don't like am, ambiguous endings, as, as you can tell. One of the things you'll notice here is that, that the Bible doesn't really, uh, at least in this context, doesn't follow those rules. Those are, those are more modern rules, and they're all good, and, and I, I like them all except for the obvious one. What, what, in Hebrew, they, they like to, to tell their stories a little differently. Can I share with you that we see here in this text, and more broadly the Bible, how they like to end the story? One is repetition. Remember that First and Second Samuel were originally one book. We've divided them into two for whatever reason, but they originally one book. And it's interesting that we end really where we began. We began with Hannah's song. You remember that Hannah uh, wants to have a baby, she gets pregnant, she writes that psalm, that, that hopeful psalm. Well, it ends with a psalm. Actually, we could even uh, see, see how, it, how it comes full circle in, in that it opens up with the hope of life. It ends with the reality of death. This is a very Hebraic way of telling a story that we have bookends here. Another way of, of concluding a story is fulfillments. If we were to go back and read uh, uh, Hannah's song there in 1 Samuel 2, it ends with, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Which is odd. Hannah writes that when there is no king in Israel. So what we see in the story of David is God fulfilling that promise laid out to Hannah. That God will strengthen his king and exalt the horn of his 
anointed. So David then, particularly in the psalm, reveals that these promises have been fulfilled. One last way to end the story that we see in the Old Testament is, is um, praise. Despite the latter half of David's reign not being ideal, it concludes with drawing the reader back to the God of the cosmos. This, this, this is typical of the Bible, um, that whenever you get long narratives in the Bible, they usually conclude with a song. The song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, for example, or Jacob's prophecies at the end of Genesis. Then there's Miriam's psalm in Exodus. There's Deborah's psalm in Judges 5. So what we have with the longest biography in the Bible, David, it's fitting then, and it is biblical, we could say, that it concludes with a song. And you notice that this song is a song of praise, drawing the reader to consider the God of Israel, the God of the cosmos, the God of our lives. Notice what David says about this God. First of all, he says that this is the God who saves, the Lord who saves. Notice the introduction of verse 1. David spoke to the Lord the words of this. It's interesting. This song is a prayer. Uh, let me just encourage you. Just a footnote. It's not in my notes. This is free. I won't charge you. Um, but the Psalms can and should be prayed. And then they, they've always been understood. Yes, you sing them in worship, but they're, they're meant to be prayed as well. You can pray through the psalm. In fact, I would encourage you, if you're ever in a situation where you don't know what to pray, pray the psalms. Pray the psalms. So David speaks to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hands of all of his enemies from the hand of Saul. Notice that we get a historical context here. And remember that what we have in these latter chapters of 2 Samuel is not chronology, but a thematic approach to narrative telling. So, so what he's done is he, he took this song out of its historical narrative part, like chronological part, and he put it here. And, and so, so we are taken back to the story of Saul. You remember Saul, right? Saul was the guy who, who rewarded David and then took it all away, even to the point that he hunted him down and tried to kill him. So now the historical context is that threat from Saul is no more. Now, either this is once Saul is no more, David writes this song because he is, he is, he's been delivered. Or it might be whenever he is anointed king of either Hebron or, or of Israel. And he, he says, look, Lord, you, you've kept your promises. You've protected me. You have guided me and you've brought me to this point. Nevertheless, we see that this is a high point in David's life. He responds by celebrating God's goodness by reflecting on God's deliverance. Now, because this is 51 verses, we can't go in detail, but let me just highlight a few things for you here. In verses 2 and 3, did you notice all the metaphors? Verse 2, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. Verse 3, my God, my rock, again, my shield, the horn of salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. These are all common metaphors used to describe God throughout Scripture, particularly the Psalms, and David uses all of them. He puts them together. This metaphor I like, that metaphor I like, this one and that one. I'm going to put them all together and say, because together that gets closer to what it is I'm trying to express. You are the God who delivers. Notice what he says there in verse 4. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. There's, there's the real idea of this first section of the Lord who saves. God delivered me. And to emphasize what God did, verses 5 to 6, he again utilizes metaphors to describe death and lostness. 
Verse 5, he'll say, waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. Verse 6, the cords of Sheol, that is the grave, entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. This is a type of parallelism to emphasize I was at the point of no return. I was at the bottom of the bottom. I was in the grave, as it were. But my rock, my shield, my fortress, my refuge, my Savior, my God delivered me. And so, so this language is used to, to, to emphasize that God has done something incredible. He is worthy of praise. Not that I deserve it, but that he is that sort of God. In fact, that's illustrated for us in verses 17 to 20. Notice the language that he uses there. He drew me out of many waters, verse 17. He rescued me from my strong enemy, verse 18. The Lord was my support, verse 19. He rescued me. What is David saying here? He's pausing and saying, redemption to me is not God recognizing that I'm the man, but recognizing I'm a dead man. And in my moment of despair, in my moments of doubt, in my moments of death, when there was no hope for me, in walks my Savior. This is all poetry, of course, but he is wanting the reader from his own heart to extol the God of salvation. The Lord saves, the Lord rescues, the Lord delivers. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So not only does he want us to see the Lord who saves, he wants us to see the Lord who shields. This is verses 21 to 31. So here, he he moves to the idea of blamelessness, right? God delivers and he makes us blameless. Notice the language in verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Now remember in the Bible, righteousness or here blamelessness or whatever term you want to use or your translation to use, is both vertical and horizontal. We are declared righteous by God when we come to Christ in faith, but we are made righteous, we become righteous by following Jesus and uh, seeking to be more like him. And here I believe David is describing horizontal righteousness. And this portion describes David's efforts to being blameless before the Lord. And so he gives us some details, verse 22 to 25. Again, we're just limited on time here. Uh, But he he shares with the reader, his his highest desire is to obey the Lord and to obey him in all of his laws and all of his statutes, whether he was a shepherd boy or whether he was king. And then, in fact, notice verse 26 to 31. He he, he breaks out of this pattern to praise God again. Go down to verse, verse 26. He says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O God, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you, I could run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. This God is... His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. You see it? You see what he's saying there? He, he, he returns back to the theme of God being shield, a rock, his, his savior. But here's in the context of, though I seek perfection, I am not that. Though I seek to be blameless, he's the one who's blameless. Though I seek humility, he's the one that lifts up the humble. He's the guy. He's the shield. Despite my weakness, despite all of this sort of stuff, 
The Lord is my shield. He is my success. I think what we need to see here is how for David, success to him was, 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 was not about what he achieved, but rather was about his character. David says here, I was content to be a shepherd. You made me a king. But what should not change is the character I had as a shepherd should be the same character I have as a king. There's something we've really got to learn as Americans because we define success not by integrity and godliness, but by followers, wealth, influence, power. But David says here, no, my, my pursuit was not power or a throne, but godly character. If you don't believe me, just compare two prophets in the Old Testament. Jonah on the one hand, Jeremiah on the other. Of those two men, which one of them do you think publishers sought for a story to write a book? Not the guy who couldn't convert a soul. No, it would be the guy who converted an entire city. One was persistently and consistently faithful, despite the frustrations that came with his ministry. The other preached a one single uh, or one uh, a sentence sermon. You'll never get that from me. But, a, but a, a sermon in a single sentence, an entire community has changed. God used both. But Jeremiah was the more faithful prophet. Seek to be faithful and let Lord handle the success. Pursue godliness. Prioritize faithfulness. Be a person of character. The Lord is our shield, even when turmoil hits. Notice thirdly, verses 32 to 51, the Lord is the one who secures. So you notice verse 32, David meditates more on whom God is as his security. We'll go down to verse 32. For who is God but Yahweh? They use the, 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 the divine name, the Lord. That's why your Bible has it in capital letters. Who is a rock? Except our God. And that question is then answered in the following verses. And what he does is David details his victories over his enemies. Battle after battle, what he finds is that the Lord gave him victory. Now, now we need to note that there. If, if David were your stereotypical dude, right? He would sit there and brag like, oh man, I wouldn't scare no Moabites. I'm the man, right? I've, 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 I've mentioned this in recent weeks where I've met guys who, who are, are, are as bad at basketball as I are who are convinced that if they wanted to, they, they could play in the NBA right now. You know, they, they just haven't made up their mind, right? I've, I've had, like, men tell me this. Like, I love you, dude, but no, right? That ain't, right? You, you hang around middle school boys long enough. Like, I, I coach middle school boys soccer. They're all convinced they're next Lionel Messi, which... For you Americans here, he's like the Michael Jordan of soccer, okay? That's, 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 let me tell you, they ain't Lionel Messi, okay? We men think too highly of our own PR, okay? What David does here is the opposite. He said, I'm just a shepherd boy. Yet look at all the Lord accomplished 
And he accomplished it not for my glory, but for his. Notice the language. He says that not only does God give him victory, but he prepared him for victory. He prepared him for battle. Verse 35, he trains my hand for war so my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Verse 38, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Verse 39, I consumed them. I thrust through them. Verse 40, for you equipped me with strength for battle. There it is right there. Verse 43, I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. Notice there, he's saying, I went to battle and I won these wars. But it was God who prepared me, he led me, and he gave me victory. Now, of course, this language is harsh to the modern ear. But we've got to remember this is an ancient text and we are modern Americans. And our culture isn't somehow better because it's modern. This is an age of war. This is an age of violence. And most kings, when they take the throne, think their kingdom should be all about them. David takes the throne and he wants the kingdom to be all about the God of Israel. What a radical difference this is. And this is why faith is so vital to our lives. Most men and women as well, but most of us look at our own resume. We think God must be really impressed with us. But David is a man of faith who understands, no, we should realize how good God has been to us. All that we have, the good, the bad, everything, all that we have is for the glory of God. David refuses to think much of himself. But when he thinks of the goodness of God, he is overwhelmed, which is why he turns to the arts to express his gratitude and worship. He turns to poetry. Let's see how he concludes. Go down to verse 47. This is, we're just going to read it. You can figure it out on your own, right? It's, it's a beautiful passage here. Verse 47, he says, The Lord lives, blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. Notice how he returns to this theme of rock. Verse 48, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out of my enemies, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. See, all these themes are coming together here at the end. For this, he says, I will praise you, O Yahweh, among the nations. And sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. To David... And his offspring for Did you catch what he said there? God is this good, not just with me and my generation. He will forever be good with every generation that follows. With me and my offspring. This is the final prayer of a man who has learned through much trial and difficulty to rest in the sovereign care of a loving God. In Christ, David learns, we will have our peace. In Christ, we will have our security. I think there's something off about this passage. Wouldn't you agree? Read it again. It's, it's weird. It's not the text itself. I love it. It's, it's paralleled in Psalm 18, almost verbatim in Psalm 18. And it works well in the, in the divine hymn book, Psalm 18. It works well. But you put it here in 2 Samuel, and it is, it's weird. Is that your, your impression? Those of you who've been with us over these last few weeks, going through the biography of David, isn't it strange to read this now? 
In fact, the, the writer wants us to see how strange this is. You go back to verse 1, he puts it in his chronological context. It is the triumph of David over his enemies, the death of Saul, and perhaps even the crowning of David. He responds with worship, right? Rightly so. That would have been a great coronation. But why didn't he put this psalm there? We began this journey, right? And we're, we're seeing the triumph of David. He gets, he's finally on the throne. It would make sense to read these words in, let's say, 2 Samuel 2. Or 2 Samuel 7 and 8, when, when the, uh, the eternal covenant is made with David. That would make sense, right? The, the, the chronology would match up. The content would match up. The context would match up. It makes complete sense. But instead, the writer takes it out of its, of its, of its chronological context, and he puts it here at the end of the story, where, where we don't have chronology, we just have a thematic approach to narrative telling. And when you and I read it, having read the story of David, it's odd, isn't it? Because the last narrative we read of David chronologically wasn't good. It was very bloody. It was very violent. His own family have turned against him. People are, are seceding from the union. People are trying to destroy him, kill him. There are giants in the land we saw last week. And then we get how blameless David is. How, how, how he just loves to praise God. It just... It just it sounds weird to read it in the context. So wouldn't you agree with that? I think that's the point. It's not an accident that the writer puts this passage here and not there. I don't, I don't want you to miss this. It's easy for us to isolate this passage and for us to come here this morning and say, see, isn't God good? And we say it without any context without any reflection, without any real deep meditative thoughts. The writer won't let us do that. Because you and I agree, these truths in this passage are universally true, beginning, middle, and end of our lives and in our community. We believe this is true, every bit of it. The Lord saves, the Lord shields, the Lord secures. It is still true even when David fails. I think that's why this passage is here where it is. Yes, it's true when David is triumphing. Yes, it's true when David is doing all he can to be blameless. Yes, it's true when he is a good, godly king and, and he has high poll ratings and the nations flee him. He extends the borders and he's slaying giants. All of that stuff is true. But the hope that David has when he's triumphing is the same hope David has during his tragic, tragic fall. When people have turned against him, when he has failed morally, these things are still true. God is still his rock. God is still his shield. God is still his hope. God is still his security. Whether he is slaying giants or being wooed, by his own lust. And if that's true for David, how much more true is that for you and I? We like to think that, that, yeah, yeah, it's a great time to praise the Lord and put our hope in him when things are going well, when, when we're a good Christian boy or girl. But how much more so do we need these words when we are failing, when we are at our lowest, when we are struggling our family is fighting. Our, our, our communities are dividing. And our world is a wreck. How much more so do we need these eternal truths? 
God delivers. God saves. God is glorified through the faithfulness of his people. I think that's why this passage is here and not earlier in the narrative. He wants us to see these are true regardless of our context. You see, if the Lord is our help, if the Lord is our hope, he is always those things regardless of the circumstances in our lives. The question is, do we see him as our help and hope? Well, we come to this text, and the question is always, how, how, how do we respond to this? It should be knowing God's truth should, should solicit a response. So, so what I want us to do in, in conclusion is I want us to survey our lives. Are you a person of thanksgiving? Are you a person of praise? Are you a person of joy? Are you a person of hope? And the question isn't what is your circumstances? The question is that David asks an answer for us here. Who is your God? And let me tell you that if we worship a Savior who has become like one of us in every way yet without sin, and so is a sympathetic high priest for us, and he has died in our place and for our sins, so the burden of, of shame and guilt and sin are laid upon him. And if we worship a Savior who has conquered the grave in much of the way described here by David, the good news is we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to panic about, but rather we can turn our sorrow into praise. We are a people of hope. And if we are a people of hope, we worship a God who saves, who shields and secures. We are a people of gratitude, a people of joy. Where are you in this text? Can you, where you are right now, sing this song? Can you right now pray this prayer? You can, because it's true no matter what. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.